0: Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom. We're on break this week. Hello from the Grand Canyon, which is very grand. So we decided to revisit a conversation from season one with Mayfield Brooks. Mayfield is a movement-based performance artist as well as a farmer, and they recently premiered a new piece commissioned by the Abrons Art Center called Whale Fall. As an extension of that piece, an immersive installation will be up from June 12th to 19th here in Brooklyn at the Center for Performance Research. You can find more details about how to see it at cprnyc.org. Here's Mayfield Brooks from January 2020. Hey, Happy New Year. This is Mackenzie Fagan, the host of Glitter and Doom. And before we get to our first episode of The New Decade, I have one quick ask for you. Today, would you tell a friend about this podcast? Maybe even text them a link to this episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Okay, that was more like three asks. Anyway, on with the show. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists and cultural creators who are responding to the most pressing issues of our times. Since at least the 1960s, artists have been putting their bodies on the line as part of their performance practices, sometimes subjecting themselves to discomfort, pain, and possibly even death. In her piece, The Conditioning, the artist Gina Payne lay on a metal bed frame placed over lit candles for half an hour. During Rhythm Zero, Marina Abramovich invited her audience to do whatever they wished to her body using 72 objects, including a scalpel and a loaded gun. Speaking of guns, in Shoot, Chris Burden asked a friend to shoot him with a real bullet. And he did, taking suffering for your art to new heights. Mayfield Brooks is an artist continuing in this tradition with their upcoming performance, Viewing Hours. Visitors to the piece, which is being performed on January 20th at the 8th floor in Manhattan, will see Mayfield lying naked and prone under 40 pounds of compost in a simulation of a wake. In a way, Viewing Hours is a perfect synthesis of Mayfield's interests. In addition to being a trained dancer and performer, Mayfield is an urban farmer, it is also a meditation on the commodification of Black bodies, their death and decay, as well as the act of witnessing. Mayfield recently joined me to discuss Marsha P. Johnson, Bees, and Improvising While Black. Mayfield Brooks, hi. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me. So
0: you have a big start to 2020. Um, You have a couple performances upcoming, including a piece called Viewing Hours.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And it says guests are invited to engage in the act of witnessing as a first step in recognizing centuries of anti-Black violence. What will they witness when people come to see the Viewing Hours?
1: Well, I insert my body into over 30 40 pounds of organic material dirt compost live compost with live things in it worms worms and bugs okay (laughs) um decomposers bacteria fungus everything that goes into compost I've been working with a florist and we were able to get all of these decaying flowers and so I i put all of that on my body, my naked body, in layers. And I am in repose for two hours while people come almost like awake and view my body under the material.
0: Are you in a, a box or a frame of some kind or are you just on the floor?
1: The first time I did it, I was on a conference table at the kitchen. I liked interrupting the space of the nonprofit arts organization office area, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they let me do it. So that was the first incarnation. Of As if UNR's. there was like a
0: board meeting around it, a table with your naked, soil-covered body on it.
1: There was it, I, maybe an imaginary board meeting, but that was where the board meetings took place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I decided to, to do it there because it felt right. And um, part of Improvising While Black, which is my kind of lifelong project, question, inquiry, research into dance and movement, is asking the question, what is this body? Like, how is it decomposing? You know, I'm an aging black dancer. I'm queer. And I wanted to bury myself in compost because my other job work is an urban farmer. And I was like, oh, well, what would that feel like?
0: <laughs> what does it feel like?
1: Uh, uh there's so many feelings for me. I, my body, the way my body reacts is that I get cold because dirt, it basically takes away your body heat. So there was this process of, for me, of regulating my breathing so that I could stay warm because I can't really move under all of that weight. I also went through moments where I just felt like I wasn't there, like I left being under that amount of weight for so long. My mind allowed my body to escape the sensation of it. Before the people come into the room, they hear my voice inviting them into the act of witnessing as a call to action. I say, like, you probably won't see me. You you may think that you are seeing me.
0: And what is the difference there between them seeing you with their eyes and them witnessing you?
1: I know that they're not going to see. I mean, I'm already dead, right? I'm I'm like, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, like, within this incarnation of how the world is, I am not seen. I am really probably not much alive to most people because of the history of how Black people have been kind of bought and sold and are still being bought and sold. Like, at this point, Blackness is just a commodity. Doesn't even have much to do with me. And so I'm asking people to just be aware of that, just to be aware of all these layers of confusion around this body and this dirt in this earth and that what does it mean to like be in the presence of these decomposers and what does it mean for people to come and be with me with that in an intimate way, not in a consumptive way. I'm just asking people to consider what it might be to witness because if everybody was actually witnessing what was actually happening, <laughs> then things would change, mm. right? Because if you're a witness, legally, you have to know what's going on. You have to be responsible for what you're seeing.
0: Right. You have to sign your name. Yes. And say, yes, I witness this. Yeah.
1: That's why I start off the monologue that people hear when they are in the separate room by saying, I know that you can't see me.
0: (laughs) Do you feel comfortable doing part of the monologue or reading part of the monologue?
1: Sure. Yeah? Yeah. I am not asking you to see me because the world has not prepared you to see me. Witness what you think you are seeing. Do not try to see me. Do not try to look too hard. After the viewing hours, I would like you to commit to a practice of witnessing what you see, what you don't see, and what you cannot see. In other words, observe yourself seeing. You are responsible from this moment forth to commit yourself to this practice as a move towards reparations. And as you know, repair work takes centuries. It seems like you're
0: invoking reparations in a much larger sense, right? Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say reparations?
1: There was a an incident that happened in Georgia, where a wealthy slave owner gambled away all of his uh, land and became indebted to other landowners. And as a result of this, had to sell all of his slaves, which was the largest slave auction in the history of the United States. He sold about 400 people. And he made $300,000 off of these people and was able to get himself out of debt. They call that time the weeping time. And so, you know, that got me to thinking about, wow, okay, so if he made 300000 I calculated that amount to be $5 million today. Would that actually pay anybody back? Well, no, <laughs> you know, because that place, that, incident that event will always be the weeping time and so how do you even begin to approach that kind of grief and and how much would each person need to be paid each person who had to stand on that auction block and who where are their people now like how do you repair that like what is where is the beginning point and so that i think that's partly why i kind of wanted to bury myself you know i wanted to take on that weight you know in a conceptual sense of course like you know the weight of history and the weight of bodies and the weight of stories
2: my name is danielle bowman i am an artist and a photographer. I live in Brooklyn, and I was, am a contributor to the 1619 Project.
0: And you're holding a magazine. Can you tell me about the image that
2: you took for this magazine? It's a landscape photograph. In the foreground of the image, there's intersecting train tracks, um, kind of making... I don't know, like a flat X almost. There's power lines, phone lines that also cross the image in like a perspectival sort of a way, similarly to the train tracks. So the train tracks and the power lines really draw the eye from the right-hand side all the way to the left and like into into the image. It was taken at like 6 o'clock in the morning. I don't know that you would be able to tell that necessarily, but the light is very textural. It's pretty dark around the edges um, because there's trees and you can see the trees and bushes kind of coming in around the edges. And in the main center of the image, it's almost as if it's being lit from within.
0: If I didn't know what this image is, I would think of it perhaps as no more than a photographer being like, wow, look at this cool use of perspective or demonstration of perspective but it's of course more than that mm-hmm. what is this photograph
2: of so the picture is of the site of the largest slave auction in the history of the United States known as the weeping time and i made this picture as a part of a commission from the new york times magazine for the 1619 project A lot of the thought behind the way that this picture was put together was that you're looking at this beautiful image in a magazine and then you realize what it's of. And I think that, you know, making a beautiful image is the first step to getting people to look at it. And then when they're looking at it and they read what it is... That's when you really start to think about and question the things that you see in your everyday life and um, what may or may not have happened there at one point in time or another, like this you know, huge slave sale that happened on this land. And it's, I mean, part of the, I don't know, in, in a lot of ways, I'm almost troubled by this picture because I made a beautiful picture of this place that is really fraught. And even as I was there photographing it, it was hard. It was, it was not an easy picture to make, and especially not an easy picture, an easy, good-looking picture to make, if that makes any sense. Um, what was it like being there in person? It felt vibrational, for lack of a better term. I mean, it really felt alive in a way that, you know, made me feel like I wasn't alone. It just feels haunted. The picture feels haunted to me and the land itself feels haunted as well. I think it's really interesting what you said about tricking people almost by the beauty
0: of the image Mm -hmm. or at least getting them to spend more time with it than Mm -hmm. they would. Because especially when we're talking about slavery and the brutality shown to black people in this country there are so many images emmett till um the photo of the gentleman whose name i don't know with like all the scarring on his Mm -hmm, back mm -hmm. or even films like 12 years of slavery people Mm -hmm. are like i can't look at that Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. too uh, uncomfortable or i'm too squeamish to look at that Mm
2: -hmm. yeah i mean it's you have to get them to look you have to get people to look by any means necessary, right? Like you, people need to look at these sites and know what happened there and the people who were sold need to not be forgotten. And will we ever know all of their names? No, for a reason, because they weren't recorded, because they weren't considered human. They weren't considered important enough to be recorded. But now that we have the information that we have, it's really important to pay attention to these places and look. So if I can contribute to that in any way, I am happy to, and the way that I can contribute is by making a beautiful picture of a horrible place or a place where horrible things happened.
0: It's clear that you have such a strong connection to the land to earth. Does this stem from your work as a farmer or have you always felt connected to earth and soil in in such a deep way? And is this the first time that you've sort of incorporated farming practices with your artistic practice as well?
1: I've been working as an urban farmer and an educator for as long as I've been a dancer, but they were always separate. Or at least I thought they were. They weren't really. It's, it's definitely been a new kind of investigation for me. Like, I know compost. I love compost. I, I know how important it is. But to actually, like, dig it up and put it on my body, that's a whole other <laughs> process. Most recently, I was at a residency upstate, and they had a garden. And I was able to do viewing hours in the garden.
0: You did it outside in the garden. Yes, Mm
1: -hmm. in October. Totally different season. (laughs) Cold. (laughs) It was very cold. Yeah, But uh, it was really incredible. It was, uh, I invited um, a group of um, black artists up to Mount Trimper and I did the ritual with them and it was really special. And it just so happened that, you know, in the compost, I was able to dig up all these marigolds and there were, there's a bunch of them that were like around my face as I was laying in the garden bed covered with compost and dirt and, um, food scraps. And, and at one point the bees were literally coming to the marigolds and I I got a little bit freaked out and I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And I just kept breathing. And, um, there was this really otherworldly, beautiful communion with the bees, these creatures that I've been close to. I've, I've um, practiced beekeeping before, but to have them so close to my ears and to my face and to my eyes, but also to not see them, it was like, For the first time, I really felt that I could hear the music of the sound that they make. It felt like being close to God. And I'm an atheist, so (laughs) it was a gift. There was no fear after I settled into the sound of it. And the sun was really bright and warm. And the smell of the marigolds became... Even more pronounced, which is a really intense smell, right? It's it's not always pleasant.
0: <laughs> well, they're decomposing miracles, <laughs> and they're too. decomposing
1: miracles. And I think that's what's different, maybe, from tending, you know, to a garden or or to a farm for a purpose versus be just being with. Hmm.
0: Talk to me about improvising while black, which seems like it's many things. It, it was the title of your MFA thesis. It also seems to be your larger artistic practice. It also seems to be like life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is Improvising While Black and what was the genesis for this project? Calling it a project seems to diminish it. Yeah.
1: I mean, it came out of my own experience of Driving While Black. I had an experience in San Francisco it's over 10 years ago now where I was driving and I got stopped by a policeman on a motorcycle. It didn't take more than a half an hour before I was surrounded by like three cop cars. And this is in like, this is probably around 11 at night in the Presidio. No one was there. The Presidio is like a government like park.
0: Yeah, it's a former military
1: base. base. And here I am, you know, they handcuffed me. They took me to a hold. I didn't even know what was going on. They took me to a holding station and then, you know, they took me to to 850 Bryant, which was the downtown jail. (sighs) And just thinking about it makes me like, I can't even believe it happened. And then afterwards I found out that all of it was arbitrary. It was a mistake on the part of whoever recorded the ticket. It was, it was basically because I had a, a traffic ticket that hadn't been dealt with in years and I had forgotten about it. And, you know, I went down to the court. I was like, what's going on? They're like, nothing, <laughs> like there's nothing here. Like he was probably just fulfilling a quota And, you know, it was the first time I had ever been arrested in that way. Mm. And it was the first time, I think, in my life that I ever felt like a captive body. Like I had no agency. And eight years, nine years later, I was in grad school contemplating improvisation that that because that's my focus. And I was like, wow. How how do you improvise through something like that? Well, that's improvising while black. (laughs) You know, like that's this kind of afterlife of slavery, of like thinking, oh, I'm fine, I'm okay. And then one day, like, you're in a cell handcuffed, without knowing why you know and then I think about my siblings and you know my brother who has been in and out of prison all his life and I think about all of the young black people who have been incarcerated without even knowing why or you know 30 years later they get out and they're innocent part of the work of improvising while black is like just grappling with what is blackness? Why is blackness such a, it always throws a wrench into like the thing that is what we might think of as America or the United States.
0: You mentioned in an interview with Karen Nelson, a a dancer and a teacher, Mm -hmm. in a way blackness is like a trickster because people think they know what it is, but we really don't. So in your experience, what do people think blackness is and what do they get wrong about
1: it? I think what people get wrong is 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 thinking that we can understand it through embracing the notion that we're all human, that like the the, the human is like the kind of goal that we have to get to. Like we have to let's all just be human, right? When that whole construct of the human is is in and, is in and of itself faulty and it was created based on other people not being human right and so there's been so much cooptation of what one might perceive as black culture african people who became african american <laughs> somehow maybe not were able to kind of create this incredible these incredible creative interventions into the kind of domination of the white colonizing force. So like gospel, for example, right? Like gospel is like magic. Like who, who, who does that? Who sings like Aretha Franklin? Nobody, you know, like, or hip hop, or I don't know what George Washington Carver did, you know, like there's all of these incredible events, moments, technologies, creative explosions that came out of Black people's experience that became racialized and commodified. Without Blackness, there would be no America.
0: Mackenzie, could you tell me what we're doing? Um... We are making a variety of peanut-based dishes developed by George Washington Carver. Do you guys like peanuts? Isabel, what do you know about George Washington Carver?
2: What I know about George Washington Carver is from a short film that played in um, Nickelodeon Jr. in the 1990s about how he invented peanut butter, but I'm told that that is a lie because Washington Carver apparently did not invent peanut butter, but he did do a lot of things with, with peanuts. He,
0: like, popularized peanut butter.
2: But who was he as a person? What have you learned?
0: What were his inner desires, hopes, fears, dreams? Is that what you're asking? Yes. <laughs> Those I can't tell you. I do know that he was the most prominent black scientist of his day. And I believe that he wanted to improve the fate of Black Americans, who at the time were largely farmers, um, and many of them were sharecroppers, by figuring out how they could increase their agricultural yields. And he was like, look, if you're farming cotton, you have to rotate your crops because cotton depletes the soil. And so he advocated for people to rotate their crops of cotton with peanuts and Something else.
2: Tobacco? potatoes.
0: No, I think something that's like not that useful, you know, which is the problem because people are like, why would I grow peanuts when I could grow cotton? Like who wants peanuts? And so part of his job was to create a market for peanuts, basically. So one of the things that he did was he put out a, a recipe book with like 105 recipes for peanuts. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them I'm excited to taste. Some of them sound pretty gross, you guys. What's
2: the example of like the grossest recipe that you saw?
0: Well, we will be having this evening mock veal cutlet.
2: No. I feel like if it's made out of peanuts, like why even bring veal into it?
0: Just call it a peanut cutlet.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, that's how I feel about like vegan cheese. i'm like don't piss in my face and call it rain just like call it something other than cheese and i'll i'll be interested right uh this is what is happening with the veal cutlets wash one cup of lentils and soak overnight in the morning strain and parboil in fresh boiling water for 30 minutes drain again and cook until soft in sufficient boiling water to cover them rub through a sieve into the puree add a quarter cup of melted butter one cup of fine graham bread crumbs, one cup of strained tomatoes to which a speck of soda has been added, one cup of blanched and chopped peanuts, one tablespoon each of grated celery and minced onions, season with a quarter teaspoon of mixed herbs, salt, and pepper. Blend all thoroughly together and form into cutlets. Dip these into egg, and then in fine breadcrumbs, place in a well-greased baking pan and brown in quick oven.
2: So what did you do, and what are you currently doing?
0: All right, so into the food processor, I put some lentils that I cooked last night, uh, some peanuts, obviously, tomatoes, herbe de Provence, salt, pepper, shallot, and breadcrumbs. So I blitzed that all together, and look, I'm not going to say it, looks super appetizing. I'm seeing Isabel give me the side eye here, but I think it actually tastes pretty good. It doesn't taste like veal. What does it taste like? It tastes like, kind of like lentils and peanuts, which is what it is. So now what's gonna happen is this puree, I'm gonna shape it into roughly the shape of like veal cutlets. and then I'm going to dredge it in egg, and then in breadcrumbs, and then we're going to fry them up. That sounds great. Yeah. We'll see. They're a little loose, which is not a word that you generally want to apply to a cutlet, but um, but we'll see. We'll see if they hold together. Hmm.
2: Huh. Huh. It's not what I was expecting. What do we think of texture?
0: I mean, it does not resemble veal Certainly in not. many ways.
2: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. But I think the texture is more like a like a mashed potato patty or like a croqueta. Yeah. You know, That's if you right. think of it as a croquette. Any of the above. Mm-hmm. That's
2: what that is. Yeah. Yeah. I get it
0: now. What,
2: what croqueta? I feel like yeah. I feel like the Spanish would make this out of tuna. And it would have the same sort of texture. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Personally, I like the flavor.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Me mm-hmm.
0: too. But I think the peanut is present, but not overpowering. No.
2: So How maybe nice. the problem is marketing it as veal? Which, A, <laughs> why? You know, why right. veal? Yeah. Just call it a peanut cro- croquetta. I agree. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. No. I'd be down. No. It, it needs a rebrand. Mm.
2: Mm. Out of like one to five George Washington carvers, how would we rate the veal cutlet? i, I give it like a solid 3.5. 3.5 uh, George yeah. Washington yeah. Carvers.
0: I don't know too much about dance improvisation, but I do know a few things about like theater or like comedy improvisation. Mm-hmm. And that the idea is that in order to play freely with your scene partners, that there has to be structure Mm -hmm. and a lot of rules. So like one of the cardinal rules is yes and, right? Mm -hmm. You always, Mm -hmm. somebody suggests something and you always say yes and then you build on it.
1: Mm.
0: And I imagine that dance improvisation is similar, Mm -hmm. that you have to have a container for the improvisation that you're doing. I'm curious about what some of those rules are in dance improvisation. And then taking that a step further, what are some of the rules about Improv- improvising while black?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. It, those are great questions, like really good. <laughs> For me, place is really important when it comes to dance. I'll take as many cues from the space as possible, and so the, the space becomes my dance partner. And then weight. So how, if I'm going to dance with the wall, like what is this dance in relation to gravity Am, am I moving up or am I moving down or both? And what what kind of, what, what am I communicating? And I think that's probably the hardest part to let go of with improvisation because um, I want to know, but I also need to be in between knowing and not knowing. Because once you're in that space of improvisation where you don't know, that's when you take the risk, right? That's when it almost becomes like dangerous. Hmm. Which is which is where I wanna be, but I also wanna know that I can come back. I'll okay. set up my dancing so that I have these rules within the space, you know, say I'm working with the wall, but then I won't know what happens after that. So there's some um, bookends. Markers. Yeah. Got it. It's like when you have the, you know, the pins on the map. Mm -hmm. And for me, my process is that I rehearse and I rehearse and I rehearse so that I know the work enough to know that each place on the map is well, is well rehearsed so that in between I can play. And then if we extend the metaphor further
0: if the act of sort of moving through the world as a black person is itself a type of improvisation are there rules or like markers that you can think about about like how do you get through an encounter with the cops when -hmm. they pull you over
1: Mm. like (laughs) you are you're you're totally like already you already are explaining it like First of all, that is always the question, you know? Like, so if I see a police um, police person or whatever coming towards me, I feel in my body, like, the choreography of how I react. I will literally, as imperceptibly as possible, try and get away from them. I mean, literally, like it. It will be. It could even be in the periphery. If I see a police car and they're parked and they're like, or if there's a, a crime scene, go the other direction. I mean, it, it, it's it, there's. It's so automatic. It's a natural human thing to understand, like where the danger is. But because just being black in and of, in and of itself can be dangerous. I know that I'm not always aware of how I'm improvising every moment. You don't even have to think about it. You, you, you can't think about it. If, you thought, if I thought about it, it would just be too much. And so that's the beauty of, for me, of being able to embrace this practice or this process or this project or whatever it is as, as my life's work because also creating spaces for black people to improvise while black for me is also part of the work, you know, because so much of I feel like how I learned improvisation and why I'm so excited about it and why it just gives me so much, you know, space and, and possibility is that like I don't have to labor. I don't have to do anything. Improvising can literally just be when I see the most beautiful improvisation, people are not thinking. You know, it's like that dancer that just you can tell they've transcended the choreography when you watch them. It's because they've learned how to improvise within that structure that is so tight and so constricting. And it's like it moves you.
0: I think that's an amazing metaphor of knowing the structure and the combines so well that you are able to transcend them. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about Letters to Marsha, yeah. which is another performance that you are doing at Jack, the Brooklyn Performance Space. Um, that's January 30th to February 1st. And it's a, a diptych with viewing hours. Mm-hmm. Um, what is Letters to Marsha?
1: I've been writing letters to this ancestor, Marsha P. Johnson, who is a, a queer, black, uh, trans ancestor for me um, and many others. And she came to me, I feel, in a time when I was really at the edge, like I was really like not in a good space. I remember sitting on the steps of this Montessori school in Chelsea at night. It was right after I had done this kind of awful cleaning job and I was just crying. And, um, and I, and I thought about Marsha and I thought about, you know, how she kind of frequented that area, the Chelsea Piers at a time when, um, queer and trans people were being criminalized and brutalized and, and how she just kind of changed everything by resisting and you know, the the story goes that, you know, she was the first one that threw the shot glass that was heard around the world and started the Stonewall, Stonewall Riots. Right. She was able to be so fierce with so little. She would go down to the flower market and just she would sleep there and she would get like the leftovers and use them for her, her, her drag. And... I, you know, I was just so inspired by that. That was, that was the year that I was 40, that I turned 46. And I realized that um, Marsha died when she was 46. And the year that she died was the same year that I was in New York. Basically, like, be, becoming an artist.
0: Yeah, it was in 1992. Yeah. And you, you write that you had a missed connection. Yes. With Marsha,
1: <laughs> I felt like, because Audre Lorde also died that year. And I was so into Audre Lord; so much of her work influenced how, you know, my thinking, but I didn't know about Marsha. And yet there I was in New York and she had been in New York that same year, but like I didn't learn about her until years later. And so it's just, I think from there I was like, well, there's been all this missed time, let's catch up. <laughs> And
0: so you started started writing writing letters. letters.
1: What do you write to Marsha? I just write to her about what's going on and kind of explain to her about, like, how the world has changed. (laughs) Like, you know, like, it was interesting to explain social media to her to kind of give her a sense of, like, how people are using her name now and hashtagging her name. And I just talked to her about everything. I think she like... would be great at social media, don't you? Well, she is. That's the thing. Yeah. She is great. at so you know, right. like yes. <laughs> she doesn't even have to be alive. And, um, she's like a friend. I feel like I just tell her everything. I think the letters, they are enabling me to thrive in the world. April 2nd, 2019. Dear Marsha and Julius, good morning. I made a solid cup of coffee this morning, but I'm still drowsy. Julius, usually I only write letters to Marsha, but I'm including you in this correspondence today because I am performing a piece dedicated to and inspired by both of you. It's entitled Entropy's Garden, and it's at the kitchen where you performed, Julius, back in the day. I wonder if you two have met. You were both homeless at times, black, queer, gay, trans, and maybe non-binary. You did not fit in, and you both had mental health trauma, and I feel like I can relate to both of you so deeply, and it's why I write these letters. No one in this current time can understand what it feels like to have such enormous beauty in your blackness, your queerness, your weirdness, your spirituality, your complete and utter refusal to conform, and your artistic and creative genius. I just feel like more people need to dig deeper beyond the hashtag. You both lived these lives that were so incredible, but they were not make-believe, like Julius, how you and Nina Simone both got degrees from Curtis Institute in Philly and how they rejected her, then gave her an honorary degree later in life and they accepted you but wouldn't house you. Fuck them. (laughs) I just want you, my black queer ancestors, to know that I am caring for you. I am learning about you and living with you as in death, as in life. Everything is everything. Thank you for listening. Love, Mayfield.
0: So in Letters to Marsha, the performance is based on these love notes and you, you dance them. Yeah. What does that look like? What does that feel like? How do you draw inspiration from these written love notes and perform that with your body?
1: I have a container that is the kind of structure of the improvisation. So I always go through the center. You know, I do this dance where my head, my head is the only thing that connects to the wall for most of the dance. I also incorporate some kind of interaction with the audience where I have a conversation with them about ancestors. And then I also use my voice, um, like in this next incarnation that I'm doing at Jack, I'm working on a kind of operatic, nonsensical, vocal score that is part of the dance. And um, there's something about, for me, about This next incarnation that I'll perform at Jack that's connected to my childhood because it'll be my fiftieth year on this planet, (laughs) ten decades. Happy early birthday! (laughs) And I'm like, wow, like, what's going on? It's just such a. It feels like such a an accomplishment, you know. It is an accomplishment to to actually survive and not just survive, but to be alive and, um, and yet also just play. Like I feel like one of the incredible kind of things that I get back from dancing, um, and also, you know, working as a urban farmer is I get to play. So I don't know if that answered your question, but (laughs) the dancing is really, um, I think it's my playtime. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much, Mayfield. Yeah. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, it would really help us if you would subscribe, if you would like the show, wherever you get your podcasts, if you would tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your mom, tell your enemies' mom, whatever. We appreciate it all. Thanks so much. Glitter in Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Fagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hogaseg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Isham.